Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Seven months after the Battle of Antietam, Alpheus Williams, who had commanded the Army of the Potomac's 12th Corps during much of that battle, wrote to George McClellan to complain that his corps had not received its due credit for its efforts in that fight. And since then, for the next 150 plus years, the 12th Corps has remained largely out of the spotlight until 2022, with the publication of a new book, Cedar Mountain to Antietam, A Civil War Campaign History of the Union 12th Corps, July to September 1862. We'll talk with the book's author, M. Chris Bryan, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you, as is the case most weeks, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not speaking for the university, not representing the university, not uh, generating income for the university at this moment, not doing anything for ECU except, I guess, raising the profile a little bit. Uh, And likewise, my guest speaks only for himself tonight, as we always do here. Well, uh, it's football season of 2022, and we're not going to say another word about that tonight. You can see how easy you did last week if you're curious. Uh, instead, we'll look forward. The uh, uh, It is the, the last Wednesday of September 2022, and we are all looking out our windows anxiously at the uh, potential hurricane that's on its way later in the week. I hope wherever you are, you are staying dry and safe and not getting flooded by it. Uh, locally, I am certainly safe here up on the third floor from flood, but what about fire? 
turns out the fire marshal used to inspect uh, offices periodically, and for whatever reason, they stopped doing it. So the university administration picked up the ball, and they now have started sending people around to check on fire code violations. This has generated a problem because as I look around my office, um, there is the every every square inch of wall space that I can see has bookshelves on it. That's that's what I've been. That's where I put the books that we talk about here every week. Uh, lots lots and lots of books. Uh, people marvel at it. Actually, I've had people stop in the hall, just stop dead in their tracks and look. Man, you got a lot of books, and I think what what do other professors do? Do do we not read anymore? Uh, and it turns out a lot of people use other forms of books, I guess, or, or other forms of data. Uh, to me, it seems normal to have a a three and a half solid walls of books plus a door. My my mentor David Herbert Donald at Harvard University. Hey, I have a Harvard degree. Did I tell you that? Um, at Harvard University, he uh, he had an office like that, and then he had that was in the Robinson Hall where the history department was. Then he had another office in the the bowels of Widener Library. I think I only went there once or twice, and it also was floor to ceiling books on the walls. And then he had a third office. I can't even remember where that was, and in his his home, his personal home, he had a, a, a an architect build a library wing onto his home with uh, ladders for the shelves that were high enough to, you know, eight foot, ten foot shelves. So I just assume that's what Civil War historians do is we, we, we get a lot of books. But apparently it's it's a little bit unusual here. And the big problem is one of my bookshelves is one I inherited from Chuck Calhoun, who used to sit in this office, and it's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight feet high. So it goes right up to the ceiling. And the fire marshal inspector says there must be a foot of clearance between the top of all your bookshelves all the way around the room and the ceiling. And you're not supposed to use that top of the shelf as an extra shelf. And I have already done so. I've got a lot of junk on those. I can clear that up. What am I going to do with this eight-foot bookshelf? Um so far, the plan is to do nothing and hope there's no catastrophic fire in the near future. And somehow that lack of open space causes excessive combustion. Uh, but we'll see. I did think briefly of changing the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund this week to the Civil War Talk Radio Bookshelf Fund so I could buy a slightly smaller shelf. But then this morning, I woke up and... Uh, I found a note from my wife who'd already gone to work teaching at a, uh, a K-12 school. They start a little earlier in the day, and she reported there was no hot water in the house, and I went out to the hot water heater, and there was water all over the floor. And so this week, you have the opportunity to contribute to the Civil War Talk Radio Hot Water Fund. Uh, there's a new hot water heater in now. I'm happy to say I will be taking a nice hot shower tomorrow morning. But in the meantime, if you go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and find out who's going to be on the show next week and see who's been on the show and listen to past shows and go to the link to tpublic.com and get yourself a Civil War Talk Radio t-shirt and all the good things you can do there. You can also click on the buttons, the PayPal buttons there, and donate to the Civil War Talk Radio 
book, and hot water heater fund, and uh, contributions will be gratefully accepted as we now try to uh, recover from that uh, minor minor blow this morning. I did mention who's going to be on the show next week. You can find out. Mark Gaffney will tell you there at the website. But I'll tell you also that next week, uh, Jeffrey D. Wirt will be here to discuss the Battle of Spotsylvania. The book is called The Heart of Hell, and it's not overstated. Uh, On the 12th of October, which uh, will coincidentally be my birthday, I will be celebrating with folks on the road as we do a This Hallowed Ground tour for Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, so no live show that night, unfortunately. But we'll be back on October 19th with Brian Cheeseborough of the National Archives. Uh, Civil War Monitor magazine calls him the hands-on historian. We'll find out why. And we'll wrap up the month of October with Wade Sokolowski and the Save Wides Fork Battlefield movement as well as his new book on North Carolina Confederate hospitals. So lots coming up. Uh, Check out the website, check out the Facebook page, and see what's going on there. Um, I did get a little boost toward toward taking care of the uh, hot water heater, actually, in the mail this afternoon. Uh, The annual royalty check for All for the Regiment, uh, published in, I think, 2001 by UNC Press, uh, showed up. Well, it's actually not a check. It's it's an announcement that I've I've got $37 coming to me, but they don't pay you until you have $50 lined up, so that's going to have to wait another year. Uh, feel free to buy a copy of All for the Regiment if you haven't already done so. And I'll stop shilling at this point and welcome tonight's guest, uh, M. Chris Bryan. He's the author of Cedar Mountain to Antietam, A Civil War Campaign History of the Union 12th Corps, July to September 1862. Uh, Mr. Bryan, are you there? I am. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Uh, so your uh, your your Skype handle says uh, Michael, but you go by Chris, I gather, uh, middle name person. That's correct. Okay, and then call me Jerry, please. Uh, the um, the middle name thing. My older daughter Caroline is is uh, is actually Mary Caroline, M Caroline, and uh, I, I I don't know. Do you find it a uh, uh, an inconvenience to to have the middle name as the the, the name you prefer. I, I I do. I had to explain it to uh, grade school teachers every uh, at the beginning of every year, so it's kind of a pain. Uh, I, I guess one gets used to it after a while, uh, mm-hmm. at some point. So um, you you've written this book on Twelfth Corps, but this is not your day job, I gather. Uh, what else do you do besides write Civil War history? Uh, so I'm a, a federal c- civilian employee. I do uh, project management for uh, acquisitions uh, in, in federal government, and so you know that basically entails, uh, you know, working with the team to uh, get uh, you know, requirements on contract, and then you know managing cost casual and performance after after it is on contract. So um, I'm, I'm immediately thinking, how can I twist that to help pay for the hot water heater? Can I? Can I sell him a podcast? Uh, but no, let's move on. The um, so, what got you interested in writing about the Civil War? Well, uh, growing up uh, in uh, Franklin County, Pennsylvania, I was in between Antietam and Gettysburg, surrounded by 
all of that and, and visiting it uh, quite a lot as a, as a young person. And um, so I, I think that started the, the interest, but I, uh, I decided at one point as I was uh, preparing to uh, do a second master's degree to, um, I had a little bit of extra time on my hands about a year and um, decided, well, hey, I can, uh, I can research and write a book in that time. There's no, uh, no hubris there. Uh, I, I'd, I'd been trying to, to read as, up to that point, I've been trying to learn as much about it and anti as possible. But uh, yeah, I'd made that, that call and six years later it's published. So uh, I was a little bit off the mark. Well, not not bad uh, that, that you did get an ending date because there are a lot of folks who start that book and they are still working on it uh, today. They, they they never get around to the publication part. So so well done there. What what brought you to choose? Uh, I mean, you mentioned Antietam, and of course, Twelfth Corps plays a an important role there. Was that what brought you to this particular topic? It yeah. So uh, in uh, looking into Antietam, it. Uh, appeared that uh, you know, the, the 12th Corps, particularly a couple of uh, George Sears Green's brigades, did really well at Antietam. But uh, relative to a lot of the other activity at, at the battle, it sort of had been glossed over uh, in the historiography. So um, that's kind of where this started. I, uh, so I was thinking of, of writing something about their, their move from the East Woods to, to the West Woods in the defense of that area. Uh, but then realized, okay, uh, George Henry Gordon's brigade really needs to be drawn into that that story. And obviously, I'm talking about the Confederate opponents as well. It's not just a kind of unit history. <laughs> and uh, at that point, I'm at three fifths of the of the core. So now, it really, should be a core history. Um, and then I I realized that the the narrative at Antietam makes the most sense when. Uh, when done in light of what happened in the the weeks prior to it, um, uh, Cedar Mountain and that intervening uh, Second Manassas campaign really um, affected the Corps in, in a way that um, uh, really explains kind of where they were at going into uh, into Antietam. And it um, it's kind of a stark juxtaposition because. Um, at at Antietam, they they do so well and mm-hmm. so went so poorly before that. It, that it's of course you can see the slippery slope there. The, the uh, you know parents will recognize the title is you give a mouse a cookie. Uh, if you give a historian a unit, then they will want to include the other units on the fighting against them and the other units on their flanks and then the battle before the battle after. And and pretty soon you're writing your your three volume trilogy of the the whole Civil War. You were able though to put limits on this. You you chose uh, quite specific ones. If we go by the title, um, campaign history July to September 1862. I guess that, that that when I first saw the title of this book, my first thought was this must be part of a multi volume project. Uh, you know why it started in July and ended in September. Uh, are you planning to keep going with it or go backward with it? I, I am uh, not backwards. I'm I'm looking uh, at uh, right now researching a uh, Chancellorsville to Gettysburg volume amongst some other things, um, and I could envision the possibility of uh, a third volume, but I uh, haven't decided on that just yet. And uh, you're absolutely right about the slippery slope because <laughs> you know I 
I, like I said, I, I didn't want this to be, uh, and it really became clear after I was done what I was doing, but not a traditional unit history. It's, mm-hmm. It really is more of a campaign history following this core around. So the, the, the scope of the, the, the view that, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give the readers, um, a little bit beyond the borders of, of this core so that its opponents get, I, I try to get somewhere close to equal coverage mm-hmm. and, and then some of the, like you said, flanking federal units get some coverage as well. Yeah, it is always hard to know where to stop. Um, I don't know if you're hearing the occasional sort of uh, high-pitched noise that breaks in. Those are just uh, messages here on the, the Skype software that we're using to communicate, and I apologize if you are. Uh, it sounds like I'm hiccuping or, or somebody is. It's just, oh, there's one right there. Um, uh, are you, uh, Chris, can you hear those? I, I can, but it, it's fine. Okay. So, listeners, you're hearing them too. You're 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 behind the scenes here at Civil War Talk Radio, getting the uh, uh, the authentic sound of what it's like to create a podcast as the messages come in the headphones. Um, it just shows that there's always something interesting uh, uh, with any new technology, and we'll uh, talk more about that. But actually, we'll talk more about the Union Twelfth Corps. With our guest tonight, M. Chris Bryan, after we take a short break, he's the author of the book, Cedar Mountain to Antietam, A Civil War Campaign History of the Union 12th Corps, July to September 1862. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with M. Chris Bryan. He's the author of Cedar Mountain to Antietam, 
a Civil War campaign history of the Union 12th Corps, July to September 1862. So, Chris, our story starts in July 1862, and at that point there really is no unit called 12th Corps. Uh, who's the who's the predecessor unit that, that you begin with? Uh, right, so it's the 2nd Corps Army of Virginia, uh, which uh, the Army of Virginia forms in uh, June, on June 26th of uh, 1862, and it continues as that unit until after they cross into Maryland uh, and then get sucked into the Army of the Potomac. So that's um, the Army of Virginia uh, are the or were the, the remnants of the, the three uh, commands operating um, more or less independently in the Shenandoah Valley against Stonewall Jackson and not doing so well. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Lincoln administration creates this Army of Virginia under uh under John Pope in order to try to bring all those units under coordination and also uh, put some pressure on the, uh, uh, well, towards Gordonsville and the supply chain for um, the uh, uh, Army of Northern Virginia, uh, which is uh, in the midst of the, uh, actually just starting the seven days when this army's formed. So who's commanding the uh, the second corps when, when at this point, it's, the future 12th corps? Yeah, it's uh, Major General uh, Nathaniel Prentice Banks, who was a, uh, a political general. Uh, he had been uh, a, a big Republican uh, and you nothing know, politician in Massachusetts, and so he had those kind of political connections. He um, had uh, that that had facilitated him becoming one of the highest ranking major generals in the uh, the Federal Army without having any real uh, experience. You have a. Uh, uh... A, a quote in here from uh, a, a, an officer in the Second Massachusetts, and who was under Banks' command, uh, who, who in a letter home writes, "Being under Banks is very much like being in company with a drunken man who flourishes a revolver. You may be shot at any moment, and then not have the satisfaction of knowing it was intentional, but owing merely to your excited friend not knowing what he was about." I just thought that was a great quote and uh, really uh, put you know gets banks right uh, but but I, I don't recall seeing that quote before I've hardly read a fraction of all there is to read about the Army of the Potomac and its predecessors but it was new and it, it, it struck me uh, that there are other quotes in here and, and, and illustrations you have a drawing for example from uh, the, the battle at Cedar Mountain that's previously unpublished. Uh, so you've got a fair amount of original research. You, 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 this is not just drawn from reading a bunch of other people's books. You, you looks like you, you've been in the archives. Uh, absolutely. Um, and uh, that, that was my intent, is to try to get, um, well, a couple things, micro-tactical uh, to, to a certain extent, and mm-hmm. also to really um, get as deep as I, I could in, in original, or well, I say primary research. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for instance, at Antietam, the Carmen and Gould papers are, are something that uh, are an outstanding re- uh, resource and um, uh, really wanted to access those uh, sort of deeply. So wh- where else did you go? I'm just curious uh, in terms of, of looking where, where, where you did the research. Uh, sure. So, um, as far as archival research, there was uh, Library of Congress and National Archives. Um, the Gold Papers are at Dartmouth, but that's not where I, I looked at them. It's Naval Academy had a uh, film set there. And then, um, let's see, 
so Historical Society of Pennsylvania, Massachusetts Historical Society, um, the uh, North Carolina's uh, archive, the Southern Historical Collection, um, Ohio's uh, State Archive. Um, I mean, there's probably a, another 15 or 20 kind of along those lines. Well, well it, it, it shows there's a lot of interesting you know, quotations, a lot of interesting color. And as you say, there, there was an attempt to get micro-tactical. We, I want to talk more about that when we get to Antietam. Um, but you start with the Battle of, of Cedar Mountain in, in early August 1862. Now, uh, on this show back in April of this year, 2022, uh, Michael Block was our guest, and he just published a book on the Battle of Cedar Mountain. And so I, I, what I want to ask you is, is back in the 1990s, there was a six-month period when I think four different biographies of William T. Sherman got published. And in the last one, in the, the introduction, uh, introductory material, the author described watching the other three books on his topic come out before his, one after another, and compared it to having the contents of a revolver emptied into your abdomen. Um, as one guy after another seems to beat you to the punch. Did you see this new book on Cedar Mountain? And, and did what did you think when, when, when that happened? Well, uh, it, it's interesting. They, they both came out the same week. It might have actually even been the same day, <laughs> uh, which was interesting. But, um, I, I mean, I, I knew it was it was coming. Um, you know, I, I, we were both kind of... Uh, moving towards the, the the finish line there near the end, and kind of knew about each other. But um, and you know, I I, I think it's fine. It, it's uh, the I guess cumulative effect of of a couple uh, uh, books on the same topic coming out at the same time. Uh, you know, just builds like a, a cumulative interest in in that topic. And I, I think it's uh, I think it's healthy and, and a good thing. Well, yeah. That sometimes you talk to people outside the field of history, and they they assume it's a competitive field like business or sports, and it's really very much more a cooperative and and collegial field. And and you're absolutely right that uh, 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 we build things one on the other. Um, now, both books, um, as I, if I'm not mistaken, were published by Savas Beatty, the same publisher. That's right. That, that is, yeah. So. Uh, I guess that also says something about Ted Savas that that it didn't dissuade him from publishing either your book or or the other one. Be, he, if he sees a good book, he's going to publish it and is not going to worry the two of them will cannibalize each other's sales or something mercenary like that. He's just going to go with it. Um, well, in terms of content, Block argues in his book that the Battle of Cedar Mountain should really be seen as the end of the Peninsula Campaign, the last battle of that, and not as the beginning of the Second Bull Run Campaign. Is he on to something, or does that distinction make any sense to you? Um, it, it, it does. I, I take a slightly, I guess, different, um, or to my mind, mm-hmm. it's slightly different than that. Um, mm-hmm. So, from Robert E. Lee's perspective, I, I think uh, Mike's uh, conception of it is is correct. I think mm-hmm. if looking from John Pope's perspective, it it's the beginning of his his campaign and in, in Second Manassas, uh, right? Now, mm-hmm. I, I will kind of hedge a little bit because um, at the very beginning of that effort, he is uh, attempting to put some pressure 
on uh, on Lee, who is currently occupied uh, down around Richmond. So uh, probably half and half from Pope's perspective and from Lee's perspective. Yeah, that, I, that makes sense. Okay. So the battle itself, you do give a, a micro-tactical analysis of it. We see individual regiments going into battle, uh, individual companies at some point. And, of course, uh, you talk about the environment. You, you have uh, very detailed descriptions of the terrain, and you have the, the wonderful maps by Hal Jesperson, who has done great maps for many, many books uh, and, and always really helped make you know, our, our great maps are vital to the kind of approach you're taking, and you've got them. Uh, one of the environmental factors at the battle, something I just saw a post about the other day, uh, the heat index. Uh, the, the, we're, we're seeing more interest in the environment in the Civil War, and people have always known it was hot at Cedar Mountain. So, uh, like a straight man in the comedy show, I'll ask you, how hot was it? Well, it was, um, and I, now I'm, I'm drawing a slight blank. I know it was 98 degrees either the day of the battle or the, the day before. Mm-hmm. And there was, uh, th- there were folks who, who died uh, en route to the to the battle. Uh, a, a new recruit from the second Massachusetts died and they, they buried him along the side of the road. And there was uh, all manner of, uh, you know, heat casualties where people were blanching and, and keeling over. <laughs> Uh, a lot of descriptions of, of that sort of thing. And, I, of course, that impacted both armies uh, equally. So the battle itself is does not go well for the future 12th Corps, for, for Bank's Second Corps. Um, was it leadership at, at fault? Did, 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 I, I'm going to stay away from the micro details just because we talked about those on the earlier show. But I do want to ask your analysis, analytical thoughts on this. Um, why, why was the Union effort unsuccessful? Given that they they were first on the battlefield, they've got numbers. They they really seem to have the edge at the beginning of that battle. Well, there are a handful of problems, and and they do uh, catch a uh, a successful initial attack against uh, Jackson's left, mm-hmm. uh, and you have one brigade driving off two and a half Confederate brigades and basically rolling up their flanks. So that's that that is good. Um, there is some uh, some difficulty with coordination, though, and part of that is uh, Banks did not. Uh, well, two things really. One, um, his uh, conception of what he was supposed to do is different than than Pope's. At least that's the the story mm-hmm. that was put out, and um, that's a fairly well known uh, episode. But then um, when the army was arriving on the field um, midday on, on August 9th. Uh, Samuel Wiley Crawford's brigade had already been there the night before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other brigade from the from the 1st Division, George Henry Gordon's, is the first in line uh, on the road. And, and they run into uh, uh, Brigadier General Benjamin uh, Roberts, who's uh, uh, on the field as a sort of plenipotentiary for, for Pope. And um, Gordon spots this high ground uh, way off to the right, about 1,200 yards away, and uh, suggests that that would be a really great place for them to, to place their right flank. And Roberts agrees with that. Um, the problem with that is it's too far behind and to the right of uh, where Crawford is to be able to uh, offer any immediate support. And then nobody bothers to tell Banks when Banks shows mm-hmm. up in the field, and he never bothers to really ascertain where his right is. So those kind of Details sort of snowball, 
into a, a bit of a, uh, a problem with supporting um, that Crawford's attack. Now, um, you know, Banks has roughly 7,000 uh, infantry plus artillery versus, uh, you know, Jackson comes in with uh, well over 10,000 and is up around 15. So, um, and they don't all arrive at once, but when they do, that becomes a real problem. Um, and, you know, Banks never really develops um, his opponent or anything like that. Now, at the end of the battle, uh, your book is just just getting going. So, whereas often in a battle book, we we get a sort of perfunctory description of casualty treatment afterwards, medical care, and then then we're done. But you you show that for the soldiers, that their lives aren't divided up that way. This battle ends, and now they've the next day the sun comes up, and they keep going. Uh, and, and, and it flows seamlessly into the campaign of the second bull run. Uh, what I found striking in your description there was how hungry these guys were the whole time. Uh, and even though they're not that far, I mean, the federal supply lines aren't that long in central Virginia. Uh, but it, it seems like, like Pope or Banks or somebody really fell down on logistics in that campaign. Right. And it was, it was Pope, uh, really. And the, uh, so after they got back uh, across the Rappahannock, actually moving towards the Rappahannock, they, uh, everybody uh, got orders to put their knapsacks in the, the wagons. A lot of folks put their tents and blankets in, in the wagons, too. Mm-hmm. And they, they don't see the wagons again until they're in Maryland. So you've, oh. got, you've got from the, the 19th of August until um, about the 5th or 6th of September, they don't see any of that stuff. They don't have a change of clothes. Um, not to mention the horses too are pretty much kept in their uh, uh, gear and mm-hmm. there are problems for them. Um, so they're not getting supplies. The, that region north of the Rappahannock River had already been stripped bare and anything that was left, Siegel's Corps was moving in front of Banks' Corps and they were stripping it clean. Mm-hmm. So there was really nothing for uh, for these folks. And I, I tell a uh, well, couple anecdotes here right after they get across the river uh one of the regiments pass on some steer that they found because they didn't have any salt or bread to go with it mm-hmm. uh, about a week later a different regiment eats a raw uh, a raw cow <laughs> they, they didn't have any salt or bread either but they you know needs must yeah the, the times change and, and demand is all relative now this uh Banks Corps does not participate in the uh, the the major fighting at, at Second Bull Run, right. and and they end up back in, in Washington D.C. after after Pope is defeated there. Uh, everyone listening to this show is familiar with the the tale of George McClellan being reappointed to command and the Union soldiers throwing their caps in the air and celebrating, uh, but. Banks Corps was never in McClellan's army. They weren't McClellan's boys getting their old commander back. Uh, did they share in the happiness that McClellan would now command the army? Uh, There's sort of a gradient there. Um, a lot of regiments did um, benefit from the infectious. It was kind of infectious. So uh-huh. a, a lot of a lot of people felt that that same confidence by being around the other uh, Army of the Potomac units, um, and they, you know, the, the proof sort of in the pudding too, because they they were starting to get the things that they needed, and they could see as they were moving across Maryland, they could see three columns in order, 
moving, you know, the, something that they didn't experience in the um, second Manassas campaign. Uh, some others were um, a little less sanguine about McClellan, but um, yeah. So, so they generally feel that things are getting better. They've got someone who knows what he's doing in command. Um, who's commanding the Corps at this point? So after Cedar Mountain, um, at the end of that evening, um, Pope and Banks and their staffs get ambushed by the 7th Virginia Cavalry. And in the escape, uh, Banks gets uh, injured by somebody else's horse. And um, he is off and on, mostly in an ambulance, uh, until they get back into Maryland. And so Alpheus Williams is commanding uh, a lot of the time. Uh, Occasionally, Banks comes back into command. But once they get back to Washington— Banks takes over uh, the Washington defenses, and Alphaeus Williams is the uh, the kind of semi-permanent uh, interim commander. Well, I'm, I'm a, a Williams fanboy, the uh, the best brigadier general who never got his second star in the whole war, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and, and it's not a lonely opinion. Uh, but he doesn't get to command the Corps uh, at Antietam, which is what we'll find out when we come back. We'll talk more after a short break with our guest tonight, M. Chris Bryan. He's the author of Cedar Mountain to Antietam, a Civil War campaign history of the Union 12th Corps, July to September 1862. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with M. Chris Bryan, author of Cedar Mountain to Antietam, a Civil War Campaign History of the Union 12th Corps, July to September 1862. Uh, just in the break, we were talking a bit about the 
the many activities along the Rappahannock River between the battles of Cedar Mountain and Second Bull Run. Uh, and it's one of the advantages of a book like this that doesn't just focus on one battle, but on a, a campaign or series of battles, as you see all the the low-level activity that we don't read about. Someone who gets shot at Kelly's Ford is just as dead as someone who gets shot in the cornfield at Antietam, but they don't get recognized. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this book, listeners, uh, about what goes on in that, that, that space between the battles. Well, we were talking, uh, as we got to the, to the end of the last segment, about McClellan taking over the Army of the Potomac uh, in September 1862. Now he's leading them on the campaign that will end at Antietam. Uh, Alpheus Williams is in charge of the Corps at least temporarily, it, it, I was amused to read about him losing the Corps at one point. Uh, the general has lost track of where his, you know, thousands of men have gone, uh, but he finds them again and, and uh, rejoins them. But then he's replaced by uh, a new leader. Uh, tell us about that. Right, so uh, it's uh, uh, Joseph King Fenno Mansfield. He's a um, uh, long experience in the regular army. Uh, and he had been sort of campaigning for a, a field command for for a while. He'd been doing um, defenses uh, around Washington and, and other other places, and um, and so McClellan was actually searching for a replacement for Williams um, already when he was doing his planning to uh, you know affect South Mountain. He um, uh, that that evening he was having a, a staffer read off names to try to get a replacement for Williams because he, he didn't think well of, of Williams. And uh, John Sedgwick almost got the job. Um, it sort of demurred uh, in a you know, respectful way, and then he didn't end up taking it. So um, uh, so that, uh, you know, on the 14th, Williams loses the core. Uh, he, he finds it again, but in the interim period, he also misses a, an interview with McClellan. Uh, that That may have been... McClellan already announcing that that Mansfield was going to take the Corps the next day, but uh, in any event, that's what happened. Is the the next morning Mansfield uh, takes over the 12th Corps. So if your boss wants to meet with you, I was supposed to meet with the dean tomorrow morning at 10, uh, dealing with some search committee business, and uh, I guess that's a reminder. I better be there uh, or Thanks get so. my position taken away. The uh, so Mansfield's in command when the army arrives at. Uh, the banks of Antietam Creek. The description of, of it sounds like the troops received him well. They they, they seem he seemed popular, but you said he'd never had a field command up to this point. Uh, not not during the Civil War, and um, trying to remember whether he did during the Mexican War. Uh, but um, yeah, so he didn't have that that kind of uh, you know, experience for leading a corps level for sure. So in reading your description of how the fighting goes, and and listeners. You know, you've you've read uh, Stephen Sears' Landscape Turned Red or other uh, one of the many many fine books about the Battle of Antietam. You can follow along. Uh, we won't go through the, the the whole structure of the battle, but the Twelfth Corps participates uh, after Hooker's initial attack is is blunted. They're sort of next in line to go in against the Confederates on the morning 
of, of September 17th. And Chris, the impression I got reading your, your description and here, and, and as you say, it's micro-tactical, is that Mansfield himself is, is being micro-tactical, is a micromanager. He, he's putting in individual regiments instead of behaving like a corps commander. Is that a fair criticism? It, it is, and uh, the uh, colonel for the 10th Maine would, would agree with you as well. He was getting sort of uh, um, short. Uh, I mean, he didn't you know, say anything to him, but he, <laughs> he, he was ready for Mansfield to turn around and head back to another regiment. Uh, as and The 10th Maine was the first one uh, really going in and, and deploying, um, and so he was sort of over-controlling their movements. So, and, and he pays the price for that. Uh, right, and th- yeah, that's uh, he he he, de- he puts them in place, and then does sort of a circuit around uh, Crawford's brigade deploying, and makes it back to the tenth Maine, and that that's where you're sort of referencing uh, mm-hmm. him telling them, "Hey, stop firing on the the folks out there in the East Woods," and uh, he he was wrong; they were Confederates, not not federal troops. And uh, that's when he uh, he tells him, "We'll go ahead and keep doing it." And then he's uh, mortally wounded in the chest. So it turns out that uh, Williams is actually going to command the corps after all. He he would be the senior division commander. There's only two divisions in the corps. Most corps Union corps have three divisions. Is there any particular reason why Twelfth Corps was under strength? No, uh, none none that I've been able to see. I mean, they pick up more later on in the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're also just generally under strength, uh, anyways. Like uh, at Cedar Mountain, the one of those brigades only had three regiments. Uh, so it, just in general, it's a, a really small uh, corps compared to a lot of these other ones. So when Williams takes over, now Mansfield's been mortally wounded. Williams take takes command. Has he been? Up with Mansfield to, to know what the corps is supposed to be doing, or does he know what Hooker's doing? Does he know what McClellan wants the corps to do? Uh, so Mansfield had gone forward, talked to Hooker, and then he came back, and the plan changed a couple times. Um, <laughs> and Hooker sent updated uh, directions, and Williams knew what that initial game plan was from the moment where they started deploying. Mm-hmm. Um, just where Crawford's brigade was supposed to go, because like you said, not only Mansfield, but also Williams goes off to deploy a, a new regiment. Crawford sort of tries to. And, um, and then once Mansfield's uh, shot and Williams takes over, he really doesn't have the, the full picture. It seems he, he rides to, to talk to hooker though. And uh, you know, he, he gets that information there, but it, he doesn't have it immediately available to him. So, who takes over Williams' division when he becomes the corps commander? Uh, Samuel Wiley Crawford. Okay, so Crawford, who had been a brigade commander, now he's got the division. Um, that that division, and you can see this from the maps, is you know is very active. They're in the East Woods. They're at the edge of the cornfield. They're they're busy fighting certainly, but the other division of the corps under General Green. Uh, they're the ones who really make a, a fairly spectacular move across the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And and I'll, I'll even sort of alter that a little bit. The, the mm-hmm. other brigade in, in Williams' division uh, under George Henry Gordon, they, they sort of stunt uh, two Confederate brigades uh, attacking across the cornfield. And they're, they're sort of the anvil, and, and Green ends up being the, the hammer 
really that, that comes around their flank and just um, it, you know ends all uh, you know it finally ends resistance in the East Woods and Cornfield. Uh, but Gordon's brigade, his veteran regiment, uh, did a really outstanding job there at the edge of the cornfield. Uh, yeah. So you've got so Gordon's brigade, not Crawford's brigade, does the most work in that division. The other division does a lot of work, and yet Crawford's brigade is the one that McClellan writes about to the extent he mentions 12th Corps in his post-battle report. He gives the most ink to Crawford's brigade. Exactly. Is, this, is this politics? What, what, what's going on there? It, it appears to be, uh, and that's certainly what uh, Alpheus Williams thought. Uh, he, he didn't have a very good opinion of, of Crawford, and uh, you know, some details that I've found in my research sort of supports that. Um, in fact, I've, another project have had an opportunity to do a, a biography of Crawford mm. before, and it, um, I've seen other examples out, outside of the scope of this book, but... Um, one quote from from Williams, he was juxtaposing his two brigadiers, and mm-hmm. he said that uh, Gordon required no watching. So that, that tells you what he thought of Crawford. Ah, it requires the watching. So uh, Green's division goes in. They, they as you say, they, they serve as the, the hammer that, that outflanks the Confederates just east of the cornfield and drives them back toward the Dunker Church. And uh, Green's soldiers get really right up to the the church they're going in they're going in about the same time that sedgwick's division is going in they they proceed the westwoods their attack precedes sedgwick by about a half an hour so they okay. it's about eight thirty. they sweep through the east woods in the cornfield and then drive in a running fight colquitt's brigade um south and then they they end up on that uh that dunker church plateau where the visitor center is now and right. then and then Sedgwick shows up at the East Woods about nine o'clock, uh, and then okay. heads out within about five to ten minutes of that. So, so uh, I mean, Green's division almost—that's that, right in the heart of the Confederate line. That—that's if if they've gotten up on that plateau, as you say, where the the current visitor center is located. There, there's not much between them and and Sharpsburg and, and breaking all the way through. Does he not have enough support to keep going any farther? Uh, he doesn't. So when they get there, they're um, virtually out of ammunition. They they do end up getting a resupply. They end up getting a second resupply later. So by the end of the day, they fire about 140 rounds um, because they're out of ammunition when they fall or close to it when they fall back. But uh, they are on that plateau a quarter of a mile ahead of the, the rest of the Union Army. And then later on, when they go into the West Woods, they're a half a mile out in front of the so it's not even a salient. I mean, they're not connected on either side. They are really detached. And then uh, in a couple cases, they don't have any ammunition with which to fight. And um, there's a lot of difficulty in getting reinforcements. Some years ago, there was an author on this show who'd written a book on a different campaign. And it was a book about a specific point in the campaign, three or four days, in which no major battle occurred. And I, I, I asked the author, like, what, what is the point of this exactly? Like, the, a micro-history of just a couple days, is it just to learn the micro-detail? Um, and when I saw your title, my first thought was, well, you know, what, besides this being part of a series, what... Why should we go into micro detail on the 12th Corps? Uh, I'm having read it. I'm satisfied. I, I 
I enjoyed this, but I'm. What would you tell uh, a potential reader? Why Why should I dig this deep into this unit? Well, uh, for starters, it, it's a. In my opinion, it's been kind of a a hole in the historiography for Antietam. So for folks who are interested in in that campaign, mm-hmm. this would be I think enriching. Uh, I, I hope anyway, and. Um, and as far as the micro tactical detail, some folks are are interested in that. I know I certainly am. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, so we're we're kind of filling out the, the the narrative on that. And to your point, though, a little while ago, the um, you know they they reached that uh, that high ground mm-hmm. later on the high ground in the West Woods, which had been the um, uh, the the goal all morning, and um, and having achieved that, not being reinforced. It, it really plays into the, the larger narrative of, of Antietam, right? So you know, had they been reinforced further, um, you know, the, more of McClellan's goals uh, could have been achieved. Yeah, it, it, I mean, there's no question Antietam is, is a, a battle of, of endless interest, and uh, so detail about it is useful. I, I, is it, again, I, I cannot quite put my finger on why some – micro tactical works leave me thinking oh that's that's a lot of detail and other ones you know i'll just keep turning the page and going okay now what happens now what happens um this is one of the latter uh listeners i think you will enjoy it as well that it um i mean because it does have the context uh as you say there's a reason to care about this this unit how it's been neglected in the historiography and the major contribution it makes, the the difference in performance between two battles just uh, a month and a half apart uh, with different leadership, and uh, I'll just throw this in there: uh, you you successfully negotiate the challenge people writing microhistory have of describing the horrors of war. Uh, people are killed in horrible ways in in the events you describe, and and some writers. Uh, I don't know what the word is. They seem to relish that a little more than than, than seems appropriate. And and you know you you don't pull any punches, but but you don't dwell on it. Uh, you keep us on the story, and I, I appreciated that style of writing. Um, so, listeners, uh, you will want to get this book. We, uh, Chris, we are sadly out of time. Uh, I'm glad to hear you are working on a sequel to this. And uh, hopefully you can come back and we can talk about that sometime. In the meantime, listeners, get yourself a copy of Cedar Mountain to Antietam, a Civil War campaign history of the Union 12th Corps, July to September 1862. It's by our guest tonight, Chris Bryant. Chris, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, Jerry. Really appreciate it. Listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.